Today we're in chapter 11, as Joel mentioned in the email uh, to remind us of the class today. Uh, this chapter, chapter 11, is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And it's, it's really, um, it's an important chapter because it, it, one, defines faith, but two, it gives us model after model after model of someone of faith. These are the, this is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, <laughs> or the Hall of Fame of Faith, or whatever the, the way different people put it. But um, I want to go back to verse 1. We started that last week, and it's the author's definition of faith, or his statement about faith. I'm not sure it's a complete definition. But it really, it's building on the very last verse of chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 10, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He had talked about faith earlier in chapter 10. Then now, what he wants to do is develop the importance of faith. <clears throat> he will say in this chapter, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? All right. Choices were made. Okay. Okay. Well, you show your unbelief. Yeah. If you don't, your evidence, your unbelief, your lack of trust in him. Um, does faith, and I want to go through a definition of it again, but does faith infer a dependency on God? It does, doesn't it? I mean, it, it just necessarily what follows is a dependency on God. You're acknowledging a dependency on God, your own personal dependency on God. But what the author does, he, he kind of gives, in verse 1, he kind of gives a, uh, a theological proposition. It's more than even a definition. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, now, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Your translations are all over the place in a group this size. So I'm not sure you all have those exact words, but in terms of the ESV translation, the key words are assurance and conviction. The assurance of things hoped for. What are some of the other ways in which that's put in the various translations? Being, Any? Sure, being sure of what we hope for. Being sure of what we hope for. Romans eight twenty four twenty five. You know, it's really into this too. Uh, the, uh, things uh, hope, hope is not seen, and, and uh, that's the theme of that. Okay, that's that's true. That's good. So, an assurance of things hoped for. What would be another word? And just sure. Is that what? Being and sure. A, be assured. Being sure. What would be another word for assurance or being sure? Certainty. Certainty. A certainty. I like that. There's a certainty of things hoped for. What you hope for, you have certainty. You have, you, you have assurance that that hope is going to be fulfilled. The author does not use wish, things wished for. He uses the word hoped for. And there's a difference between hope and, and a wish. So there's a certainty. Let's, let's try to work through this, because I really want you to make sure you get your intellectual arms around this 
this first verse, that you really are thinking about it. So a certainty um, about what we hope for. There's a certainty there. It isn't a wish. You know, you, 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 you all could say something like, I wish I'd get a million dollars. Well, that is. It's a wish. It's kind of baseless. It's kind of maybe silly, but I mean, for I mean, I don't know where you all are at. Maybe some of you are millionaires. But my point is, just if I would say, I wish I get, I wish I get a million dollars. That's that's really almost baseless. Um, I don't have any really rich relatives. I don't play the lottery. I'm retired, so my income is limited. So you know, there's just that's a silly thing to say. And I could say, I hope for a million dollars if it's the same thing. But when we say, I hope Jesus returns for me, is that a wish? There's a certainty there. Why is there a certainty there? Because he promised to do that. He said he was going to do that. And God doesn't lie. And God doesn't lie. Yeah, I mean, it's it believe and faith. Believe is the verb. Faith is a noun, but it's that idea. I believe that that's true. There is a certainty about that hope. That's why Titus 2.13 calls it the blessed hope of the church. I mean, we know Jesus is going to keep his promise. Glenn, you the word that keeps coming in my mind is trust. Exactly. I mean, that's a, to me, uh, somebody asked me that last week, but I, I really like the word trust as we try to get our arms around what faith is. So there's a certainty about our hope, a conviction of things not seen. What, okay, now think in the context of, of the book of Hebrews. What do you not see? Who do you not see? Jesus. Jesus. I mean, you understand what I mean? You don't see God. No, no one in this room, even if you had a vision or something, no one in this room has ever seen God. Do you believe that God exists? Do you have a conviction that he exists? So there is a certainty of our hope, and there is a conviction about what we do not see, but we walk by, the, the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. So can you say that it's like a decision, like we don't have all the answers, we weren't there, we don't know how all this happened, but we can believe it, we can make the decision to believe it, even if we haven't seen it. It's a decision. We don't have to have all the answers. Is that? No, that's exactly right. But how do you know, Woody? I'm gonna since you brought this up. How do you know God exists? How can you have that conviction that He exists? Well, um, He didn't speak to me, but He helped me. I prayed to Him okay. many times. Okay. Yeah. I could get sober. And I did it at the same year that you turned your life over to care. 1972? Yeah, 72. Wow. No kidding. God was doing a lot of work in that year, wasn't he? Yeah, over here, I know that. But I truly believe 
Okay, one of the pieces of evidence for you is he answers prayer. Even though you don't see him, you can't, there's no tactile objective, there's God. But you you have that conviction that he exists because among many other things, he's answered your prayers. Yes, and I had pledged not to drink on multiple occasions and I, and I was going to quit for sure. And uh, I could not, I could not quit. Mm. Until I came to believe that God could help me, that I, wow. there was a higher power than myself, yeah. and that then that was God. Wow. And so I prayed directly to God wow. every day. Amen. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Well, that I mean, that's that's a that's a great answer. That's part of 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 the conviction. The reason you have that conviction that there is a God. And I mean, I I don't want to, I will if you really want me to. I don't want to necessarily take any more time on that because there are, there are multiple reasons why we have the conviction and, and the, the example we're using here that God exists. We can't see God, but we believe he exists. Somebody, to just help us think through that, um, you're standing up on uh the First National Building downtown. You're on the top floor. You're out on the roof. I don't know if you can get out on the roof, but some of you can. Um, why wouldn't you jump off that for just the thrill and the excitement of jumping off that building and and that, that exhilaration of falling? Why, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, because you were taught the law of gravity in school. You've seen the evidence of the law of gravity, but you can't see gravity. Or you can't see it. It's a, it's a force of nature, so to speak. Now, again, the analogies, like all analogies, ultimately break down. But that helps us to see. I can't see that, but I believe in the law of gravity. It's a physical law of the universe. And I know what happens if people try to violate that law. And the evidence for that is very clear. So another way to think about this, too, is just, and these are the things we've talked about in our class, God has revealed himself in his creation, in human conscience, in his moral law, and in Jesus. Every one of those demands a respond to faith. Some kind of a response. I believe that. And it's, it's it's an important avenue for us to start thinking about. Everyone has convictions about things they can't see. Everyone has beliefs about things they can't see. And those beliefs govern their actions. And gravity is an example. The author is saying faith is a confident trust in the God we can't see, but the evidence for him is overwhelming. So it's a confident trust in him. I believe he exists, and I believe he's revealed himself, and I believe the nature of that revelation. Now, I'm linking a bunch of things together. So again, if, and and that's, Glenn used that word, and that's the word I was using. Faith is assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. There's a certainty about faith. It's a belief. 
And it's a belief that's rooted in a confident trust in God. And so the author says, now what I want to do is I want to show you example after example after example of people whose lives evidence this confident trust. They may not even have seen God fulfill all his promises to them, but they still believed it. So, uh, well, let me stop for a minute. Are there any questions or comments or further illustrations or whatever about faith? I told you that I would love, only one person did that. I would love for you to write out your own definition. And if you borrow confident trust, that's fine. But to me, it's really important when you talk about faith, what do you mean by that? Faith always has an object, always. And that object is God. So your faith in him is a belief in him. But it's not just I believe, you know, James says in in chapter 2 of his epistle, even the demons have faith. There are no atheistic demons. You know, there are no demons that are atheists. That's part of it. That's what's so silly about, in my judgment anyway, about modern atheism. But it's not just that. It's not just I believe in God. That's part of it. But it's much deeper. It's an assurance. It's a certainty of what I hope. And my hope is rooted in his revelation. He's promised a lot of things to me. And it's a conviction of the things I can't see. I, I can't see God. I can't see all the things that are associated. I mean, I can't see angels, but I believe there are angels. I mean, on and on and on. That's the point. So the author says, let's, let's examine this. He says in verse 2, for by it, meaning by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And that's how ESV translates that, that Greek word, commendation. God's approval. The testimony of God. He, he commended them for their faith. Not necessarily for everything they did, but for their faith. What's the very first thing that out of the chute, the very first thing he stresses? That God's the creator. You see that? That's the very first thing. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. There's not matter. In other words, now this may or may not be important to you. The authors argue matter is not eternal. The atheist argues that matter is eternal. Do you understand what I mean by matter? That the elements of the fit are eternal. And evolution just shapes and molds and all of that. The author is saying, you can't accept that. Because we, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's, of course, Genesis 1. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author is arguing for an ex nihilo. Do you understand what ex nihilo means? That never happened before. All right, if you don't know what this means, it is going to be on the quiz next week. You must know what this means. It's Latin, obviously. But the author in verse 3 is arguing for ex nihilo, from nothing. That's what that means. In other words, God, at one point there was nothing, he spoke, and there's something. 
You, you follow me? Mm -hmm. He didn't just say, okay, matter is eternal, now I'm going to shape it. No, that's not. That's not what the Bible declares. So God created things out of nothing. And it's, a, it's one of the really major tenets of just logic. Nothing, now listen carefully, nothing ever produces something. Do you follow that? Mm -hmm. Nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing, nothing. No material, nothing. If there's nothing, how can there become something? Well, this is one of the real problems of the modern atheist because they, they can't explain it. They can argue for the eternality of matter, but they still, where did that come from? Well, it just always existed. But isn't it reasonable to ask if it's always existed, where did it come from? It just has always, well, it always existed. And people are saying, wait a minute, that bothers me. The Bible is saying, item number one of our faith is believing that God is the creator. That's, that's a basic, foundational proposition that God is the creator. And almost, I think this is true, Almost every book of the Bible refers that to us, reminds us of that, reviews that for us, that God's the creator. He's not only the redeemer, he's not only the savior, he's the creator. All right. Now, with all of that sort of philosophical, theological foundation laid, now he begins to illustrate a life of faith someone who lived with a certainty about their hope, convictions about God that evidenced disconfident trust. By faith, I'm in verse 4 now, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This tells us something that's very important in that material in Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 5, or Genesis chapter 4, excuse me. Abel, Cain and Abel. The point about Abel is worship. Results from faith. Faith in God produces worship. And the first worthy worshiper was Abel. You all, you all know the story, but even unbelievers, people who reject the Bible still know about Cain and Abel. But you know, each presented an offering to God. But the way in which the text depicts it, and certainly from this verse depicts it, Cain's work, Cain's offering was, okay, I got to do this again, I'll take it and give it to God. Abel's worship of God through his offering was energized by his faith. A, a, a person of faith will be a worthy worshiper of God. So that's 
Now, further elaborating upon what faith is, what does the life of faith look like? A life of faith is a person is the worthy worshiper of God. Because he says, he still speaks. He's still a model for that for us. Even though he was murdered by his brother out of jealousy, and you know the story, the, the horrible things that occurred there, Abel still represents the model faith generates worthy worship. What in the world right. is antediluvian? Before the flood. Yeah, it's it's Latin. Right, so deluvian refers to the flood. Yes, deluge, deluvian. You say you're learning some vocabulary words here, Rob. No, I just that'll be on the quiz. No, no, I know. That's good. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked that. These would be the saints before the flood. The Greek, the Latin prefix anti means before, and deluvian is deluge before the flood. Abel would be one of them. Okay? What was the word again? Antithetical? No, it's, it's in your notes on page 22. Okay. But antediluvian. 25. Or 25. Yeah, my, 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 my page number, but it's. Antediluvian. Antediluvian. Verses 4 through 7. I think they told me tw- 25? 25. Page 25. About two thirds of the way down. <clears throat> Sit. Sit. Here's page 22. Oh, no, 25, they told me. The there you go. And when you write it on the quiz next week, make sure you spell it correctly. Not anti, but anti. So wouldn't it be awful if I started giving quizzes? All right, now, next, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Now, Let's talk about that. Enoch is one of those, uh, he's an obscure guy. He really is. He's in Genesis 5. In all the genealogy, if you go back, I don't know, maybe we should go back. If you go back to Genesis 5, it's the genealogy from Adam on. And the key phrase in every one of the uh, characters in the genealogy, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then you come to Enoch. And it says, Enoch walked with God. And God took him. It does not say Enoch died. So in my notes, what I put was, Abel worship. Abel illustrates that faith produces a worthy worshiper of God. Enoch represents a person of faith is a person who walks with God. The idea of walk is the the daily, the daily walk, the daily fellowship. And that's extraordinary for Enoch because, again, if you look in chapter 5 of Genesis, you just see person after person after person. Many of them, it's the only time they're mentioned in the Bible. But it just says, and he died. And he died. But not Enoch. So it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so he did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, there's a proposition in verse 6. We'll get that in just a minute. So, faith produces a desire to walk with God. The daily walk of fellowship, 
the daily walk of dependence. Enoch represented that. He's one of those guys, we just, all we know about him is that he walked with God. Not necessarily a prophet or anything? No. I don't really think about no, I, it's, well, that's it, uh, Woody. When you go to chapter 5, there's a little, few verses, and that's it. But he, he, he must have been an extraordinary individual. While we're at it, could you tell us again what, what we're going to do next? Colossians. <laughs> Colossians, yes. Which is a fabulous book. Oh, I can hardly wait, but I want to take our time on this. Now look at verse 6. First, verse 6 is like, Okay, I want to remind you of something. It doesn't have to do with a person. It doesn't have to do with one of these Old Testament figures. I want to remind you of something. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. In other words, if a person seeks God, now that, the word reward, that, that, can, uh, that can cause us to stumble a little bit. Because you're thinking of that trophy you get on your on your desk at home for bowling or golf or something. That's not the idea. It's the, the the point is if a person seeks God, God will respond to that. So he just reminds us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. There's no merit system with God. There's no. Um, set of performance standards and you meet all of those, then then God finds you acceptable. No. He reminds us, those who seek God find God. He rewards those, meaning he will he allows himself to be so easily found. So that that important proposition, God is not impressed with our academic degrees, with our salary, with our home size, with our portfolio. God is only impressed by faith. Because faith is that confident trust. I was, Peggy and I each morning read a little devotional. And this morning, uh, before we pray, right after breakfast, this morning it was a little passage from Jeremiah, chapter 9, I believe it was. And Jeremiah the prophet is saying to Judah, God does not want you to boast in your riches, in your wisdom, in your knowledge, or your accomplishments. He wants you to boast in him. You have to think about that. But when you think about it, you understand that's, that's, really, that's really talking about faith. God's not impressed with all these accomplishments we make. Now, this doesn't mean, that doesn't mean he doesn't gift us and enable us to, to have those accomplishments. That's not what commends us to God. It's faith in him, going back to our definition as we talked about it. All right? Mm-hmm. So you have three, and we're really only two. You have two antediluvian saints. Now you all know what that word means for the flood. Abel, or more than that, but he just said Abel and Enoch. Now, he's going to focus on Noah. By faith, Noah, I'm in verse 7, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, 
events as yet unseen. What event which is not yet seen? The flood. God said, I'm going to destroy every living thing on earth by a flood. And where Noah lived, there, there was no ocean or no sea. It was really amazing. And he said, I want you to build this ark. I'm going to give you the dimensions of it. Noah said, got it. I'll start building tomorrow morning. And he did. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When you go back to Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that. That Noah believed God and it was counted to him. It became in his life righteousness. He was a righteous man. King James says he was a just man because he believed what God was saying. And that is, you know, you and I, it's such a familiar story of the Bible. Everybody knows it regardless of whether they believe or not. But you have to just kind of remember the situation. God shows up in Noah's life. Noah walked with God. He was a man of faith. He tells us that. And God tells him, I'm going to destroy planet Earth with a flood, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to save your family. And this is what I want you to do. Build this massive ark, and then I want you to gather all the animals, etc., etc. And, you know, there's no... Well, now, God, I really want to talk about this for a minute. Just a second. There's never been anything like this. And I just don't know, Lord. And how am I going to eat all the animals? No, there's just no... There, you have a man who believed God and did what God told him to do. And it's, it's, it's a remarkable and astonishing man of faith. And God honored that by, of course saving him and his family from the destruction. But you have that connection again. God's commendation is his righteousness. The righteousness of God becomes the righteousness of Noah. Now verse 8. By faith Abraham. Now he's the giant. There are going to be a number of verses about Abraham. Abraham is about 2000 B.C., roughly. Uh, maybe about 2100 B.C. So that's 4100 years ago. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Where did he live? He lived in Mesopotamia. He lived Roughly where modern-day Kuwait is. That's where he lived. There's a major city there called Ur. Wealthy city, uh, prominent city. And God said, Abraham, I want you to get out. I want you to leave your family, leave your wealth, leave your stature, and I'm going to show you where I want you to go. So as he left Ur, you are. He did not know where God was taking him. But he still believed it. He's one of those guys that's just, oh. I wish we knew more about him. Did he know about God? Because Ur was a polytheistic, pagan city. How did he make this? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But God spoke, Abraham believed, and he acted. So he leaves. And he went, not knowing where he was going. Now, I want you to be brutally honest with me. If God told you tomorrow morning, 
I want you to leave your home, leave everything, and follow me. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I'm not going to tell you the place where I'm taking you. But just follow me. Would you do that? Would you have that level of faith? I, you know, Peggy's asked, one time Peggy asked me, and I said, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> she said, would you have done that? You know, and I, I'm kidding, of course. We talked about it. But think of that extraordinary situation. He didn't even know where he was going, but he believed what God said. Now, the author doesn't tell us here, but remember, it is in that context, in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls him out of Mesopotamia. Abraham, I'm going to make you a people. Out of your loins are going to come a people, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And, and Abraham, I'm going to give them land. And Abraham, in you, all the people of the world are going to be blessed. That's the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. A remarkable promise. A, a, a remarkable and astonishing promise. Because when Abraham was in order of the Chaldees, he didn't have any children. His wife was barren. She could not have children. And so God just promised him he's going to have, out of his loins, a people. As, you know, I'm thinking, oh, no, just a minute, a time out here, God. My wife's barren, you know. You do know that, don't you, Lord? There's none of this conversation. He believed what God said. Continuing, by verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a, what is the land of promise, by the way? Canaan, Canaan which will become Israel when Joshua conquers it. As in a farm and living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Because that's why in the Old Testament you see the reference, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he made the same promise to each one of them. The father, the son, and the grandson. And each one of them believed the promise. Did Abraham, it says live in a tent. The, the idea of a tent is not a permanent resident. Did Abraham build a permanent residence in Israel? No. Did Isaac build a permanent residence? No. Did Jacob? No. As a matter of fact, Jacob died in Egypt. So you just think, wait a minute. These men are enormous, enormously significant men of faith. Because every one of the promises God met, land, seed, and blessing, they did not see God fulfill that. But they still believed all right, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, that, that almost sounds a little mysterious, but verse 10 is focusing, Abraham had an eternal perspective about things. He's talking about heaven. He's talking, Abraham, this is amazing too, Abraham understood that there is a heaven. And although God is going to give him land, give his descendants land, ultimately, it's heaven without foundation. Verse 11, by faith Sarah 
herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, as you know, she was 90, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, Abraham was a hundred, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, which was part of the promise God made to Abraham. And that is true. Millions and millions and millions of people came from Abraham. They're called the Hebrews, the Jews. From nothing he created something. From nothing he created something. And so, I mean, you know, you know that you. I think we've studied Genesis here a years, a couple of years ago. But when you, when you just you remember this, that God made the promise. It's twenty-five years later till Isaac's born. So Abraham and Sarah heard God's promise. It takes twenty-five years till God fulfills the promise. Just a quick sidebar: Why did God wait so long? I mean, why? I mean, you know, even when the promise was made, Abraham's 75 years old, and Sarah's 65 years old. So, I mean, even, you know, you think, oh, good night. Was that common knowledge that God had promised him? Did anybody else know that? Well, remember, he's a, he's, he's a herder of animals, so it would seem to me that the people who were around him, his servants, etc., knew that. So when the 25 years would give them a chance to believe, you know, when, when she did have a child. And that one of his very faithful uh, <laughs> servants, Eliezer, Another, a servant of tremendous faith, doing what God and what Abraham instructed him to do. So, uh, yeah, he becomes a model of faith for a lot of people. Demonstration. Yes, to others. That's right. Verse 13. This is an unusual statement. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to call their God for he's prepared for them a city. Now, verse 13 through verse 16 adds a dimension to the discussion of faith. Faith has an eternal perspective to it. Faith has an eternal perspective to it. Why is that important? What is no, 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 Follow me here. This is a very important question. From verse 13 through verse 16, what is the content of that eternal perspective? Do you understand what I'm asking? What is the content of that eternal perspective? What is he telling us in verse 13 through 16? What's the content? Faith. 
keep, keep going. What, it's very specific content here he's telling you. It's not just an abstract belief. It's a belief in something that God has said. What is the content of this eternal perspective? That's a dimension of our faith. Heaven. Heaven. That there, listen, that there is something beyond our death. There's, there's more to life than just our physical life now. There, let's put it, I'm trying to put it three or four different ways. There is an eternal dimension to life. When we die, that doesn't end it. So when you say faith, then it equals eternal perspective. Faith has an eternal perspective to it. And that eternal perspective, from what verse 13 through 16, he's being very specific, has a content to it. And that content is heaven. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one, he says in verse 16. In other words, we believe in the physical world. We live in the physical world. God makes promises about the physical world. He made promises to these people. A, pl- a land, specific land with boundaries and all of that. Uh, a, a, a heritage of people that would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, etc., But among other things, what kept them going, what kept them energized, was not just God fulfilling those promises, but a much greater promise, which is heaven. So that reminds me of Peter in the joy and hope. Exactly, exactly. You see, my my father, or uh, what would he be? Uh, My daughter-in-law's father. So what would he be? I don't know what his... But, you know, Jonathan's wife's dad is a philosopher. You know, they live in England. He's been in university and all that stuff his life. And uh, he's, he's just... In, I've, I've had many, 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 many conversations with him, both when we were there as well as over email. And this is what he believes. Life, life is just characterized by despair. He's an existentialist. He loves Sartre. He, he loves all these existential. UNESCO is one of his favorite writers and all that stuff. Despair. Because when we die, that's all there is. And I wrote to Peter. I said, so when you die, Peter, you just cease to exist. That's right. You, just th- you start thinking about that for a minute. And you start thinking, well, then, if that's true, so what you're saying is there's no, there's nothing transcendent, nothing beyond the physical world. There's no spiritual dimension to life. So if, when I die, that's it. There is no God. There's no eternity. There's no heaven. I can see why he's in despair. There's, he has no hope. He is, he's 77 now, I think, 76, 77. He's got real bad diabetes. He's uh, in, in very, he's had a couple minor strokes. Um, you know, Peggy and I pray for him every morning because one of these days he's going to have a stroke that's going to take his life. <clears throat> and I said to him, Peter, I do not want you to go into eternity without Christ. Amen. Now, he He's not excited about a statement like that. 
at least he won't admit it, whether he thinks about it or not. But just think about that for a minute. If that is really what you believe, then why live a good moral life? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die? Why not just live it up? Why not, you know, there's no reason, there's no purpose to life. Obviously, despair, if there is no God and there is nothing after death, then despair is the natural response to that. It's an utter despair. Oh, it is. I mean, it's just, the more I think about that as as people believing that, the more I think, oh my goodness. If you really genuinely believe that, you you would be utterly and totally depressed 24-7. Now that's a little maybe a little, but then you start thinking about loved ones and people you really care about who die. See the hope, as this is what the author is saying here. What motivated Abraham and Sarah and their child Isaac and his child Jacob, despite all of their frailties, was they understood there's something beyond the physical world, a heavenly world that God has promised to us. And he's telling us that that is what energizes people. That's why God is not ashamed to call them their God. I am their God. Because they believe me. They believe I prepared a place for them. They believe in an eternity. They're motivated and energized by me, this is God speaking, and by wanting to be with me for all eternity. I'm not ashamed to call him to God. This is, a, this is a powerful statement about faith. Faith is not faith, without faith it's impossible to please God, but faith is energized by an eternal perspective, the content of which there's something beyond the physical world. And that physical world, beyond the physical world, is heaven, the place of God. And he wants me to be with him for eternity. Rob. I'm sorry. Some I've thought about often quite a while. Because it's clear that our promised land is not in this world. It is heaven. What's the possibility that the Jews, while they were wandering, God had promised them the promise? And we don't know the story of Moses that he never saw the promised land. But is, is, is that true, or did just the Jews and perhaps the biblical writers miss the point? That the promised land was not the land on the other side of the river. That we're really talking about the same thing that is our promised land. Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think certainly all of the leaders like Moses and Joshua and Caleb and all of that had a clear understanding, clear belief in eternity and heaven and so on. And that's partially what the author is telling us here. The common ordinary Jew, I don't know. Certainly some, you know, it's a little bit like today. Um, Some people have that clear eternal perspective that there is something beyond the physical world. It is the place of God. He wants me to be with him. He sent his son so that I can be with him. All of that is a part of that framework of belief. And that's why without that um, belief that there is something beyond the physical world, that there is a heaven, 
and so on, you, you can very much fall into despair. And I think that's where an awful lot of people are today. An awful lot of people are living. Many, many people today, regardless of who they are and where they are, are in effect practical atheists. I mean, they really are. They're living their life, really, even though they may tip their hat to God, maybe even go to church or whatever, but they really, really don't believe him. They really don't believe in him. They really don't believe in these promises. They're living for the moment, and that's all. And that's what the author is challenging us through all these different examples, that that is not faith. Right. Examples from Abraham or from Noah. There was no, there was no Genesis wasn't written down for them. They didn't have a Torah to, to get that information from that God created the world. It's coming from somewhere else. Then, the truth. Well, I think. Well, yeah, that's that's good. There is what is sometimes called there is an oral tradition that is passed on from father to children, et cetera, et cetera. And that oral tradition is a part of, of that that faith that that results from that I'm believing what is what my father and my grandfather are telling me about God and what he did, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also believe there is that as a part of that there is that response in their hearts to the Revelation of God in creation, the revelation of God in, 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 in human conscience. And those, those revelations, they're responding to those. They're believing those. But, I mean, it's, it's all of that plus that oral tradition. That oral tradition is really, really important. And that is what Moses then will write down for the first 11 chapters. Wow. Isn't it an easier sell? Your friend that you were speaking of. Isn't that an easier sell than Christianity when you think about it? I mean, it takes no effort to believe in nothing. That's right. That's right. And here I am, 78 years later, yes. studying this, building yes. my faith. Yes. So, to me, it seems very natural that there's a lot of people that say that there's nothing out there. Yes. Yes. Well, you're right. I mean, it's it's kind of a simple, a simple worldview that... There is nothing beyond the physical world, and when I die, I am extinguished. I do, there's nothing beyond the grave. But, you know, the thing about that is, though, when you, for the intellectually honest person, the closer you get to that terminal point, the more do I really believe that. Do I really believe that when I die, I cease to exist? There's nothing beyond the physical world. I will never see my wife again. I will never see my children again. I will never see my dad, or my, you know, because my parents just passed away in the last you know, 18 months or so. You know, if I didn't, have, if I didn't believe what we just studied in verses 13, if I didn't believe that, then the bottom line is I'll never see them again. And you, you know, you start to think that way. God has placed that in our heart. That's part of conscience. You have to wrestle with that issue. Do you really believe that there's nothing beyond the physical world? That the only thing that's eternal is matter? That there is no God? And it doesn't matter how I live. 
It doesn't matter the choices I make. It doesn't matter how I raise my kids. It doesn't matter, et cetera, et cetera. Because they're the logical consequences of that, if you're really intellectually honest. And that's what, that's what Solomon does in the book of Ecclesiastes. If there is no God, then you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's it. I mean, why live a good life? Solomon asked that. Why did I invest so wisely? If when I die, the only thing that happens, I give it to my kids, and they're all a bunch of fools. That's what he says. Why did I do this? And he goes, he says, I, I built all of these palatial uh, buildings and these massive gardens, and tomorrow I'm going to die and give it to my kids. They're a bunch of idiots. Why did I do this? I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is they're the kind of questions that you really start to ask yourself if you're honest. But as Rob, I think, said, most people are living today as if I just live for the moment. I don't want to think about those things. I'm just living for the moment. And that's, uh, that's, a very, that's what teenagers do, as you know. The teenager perspective is I live for this afternoon. I don't care about tomorrow. I'm just living for this afternoon. You know, that's their perspective of things. And I mean, you know, and you get to, at some point, you have to face there's more than just this afternoon. There is tomorrow, and there's next year, and there's five decades from now. And it starts to have our, our daughter, Joanna, who's 32 now. She, she, a lot of people have died in our family, and it's really causing her. I mean, she, she, has, she believes in the Lord and all that. But it's causing her, to, she said this to us the other night, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think about death in a very different way. Simply because so many of, you know, grandma and grandpa have died, Nana, Peggy's mom has died, uh, Peggy's sister died. So I've been a lot of that, and you face that. She's 32 years old. When she was 16, she barely thought about the next week. <laughs> you know, so. Well, while I'm over time, I'm sorry about that. Great questions. And this is a rich, rich chapter. We're going to continue next week with, uh, I'll pick up where, verse 17. As we continue on Abraham, it's quite a bit more about Abraham. And then we'll, we'll move into the practical sections in chapters 12 and 13. Father, we thank you for this chapter. Uh, it's, it's one of the great chapters of the Bible on faith, assurance of what we hope for, conviction of what we can't see. It's a confident trust in you. We believe what you've told us. We believe what you've said. And we act upon it. It leads to worthy worship, like Abel. It leads to a confident walk and trust in you, like Enoch. It's like Noah, who built an ark, believing what you said. It's Abraham being called out of a country to go to another country, and you didn't even tell him exactly where he was going, but he believed you. He trusted in you. Lord, these are the giants of faith. We want to be men of faith men who trust you, men who believe your promises. We believe that you have prepared a place for us in heaven. We believe that we are going to be, a, be with you for all eternity. They're the things that are a part of the content of what we believe. It's because you've revealed yourself to us. You've given us very specific things to believe. So, Lord, we trust you. We want to be men of faith, and we want to represent you well. Help us to do that. To the glory of your dear Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.